this is Kelly from Denver, Colorado, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So let's get started. Before we get to the show, I would like to take the time to thank everyone for continuing to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as for those who have left reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to the show on. By spreading the word, by recommending California Dreaming and listening groups, and of course, supporting us on Patreon as well. There are currently more than 20 exclusive bonuses on Patreon, so for as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to all of those episodes. The most recent Patreon bonus went up last week, and it involves the murder of Doctor of Biomedicine Helena Greenwood at her Del Mar, California home in 1985, a case that went cold for 14 years until the very DNA technology and research that she dedicated her life to advanced enough for her killer to finally be identified. This week, I'd like to thank Kristen M., Lisa B., Christina L., Rebecca M., Lindsay L., and Dan J. for joining Patreon, and John C., Jen T., and Marcia C. for raising their support to the next level. I am behind on sending out thank you cards, but I promise I will get to it very soon. And if you would like to make a one-time donation to help support the production of this show, you can do so through our PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for all of your support. So what is a grifter? Well, the word grift is a verb, and the simple definition is to obtain money or property illicitly. So a person who is a grifter is basically a con artist, or my favorite word from back in episode 90 when we talked about the murderer of Nicholas Howard, Ralph Marcus, a no-good louse. But we didn't call him a grifter. He was a different kind of con man. I think we apply the term in more describing a person who has nothing of their own. No job, no home, no money. And everything that they do obtain, they do so by swindling a series of victims who they befriend or get into some sort of shady business dealings with until they've taken each one for all they can and then move on to the next victim. But I didn't want to just talk about the simple definition of the word. I scrolled down the Google results 
and it gave me some other suggestions, and one of them was famous grifters. I thought, well, this might be interesting, so I clicked, and the top result was Charles Ponzi, as in the Ponzi scheme. I was today years old when I realized Ponzi scheme was named after an actual con artist. I guess I never really looked into it beyond the actual scheme itself. And according to Google, he's a famous grifter. I wanted to tell you about Ponzi, but as I got into researching it, it became too long. So what I'm going to do is maybe do a little addendum to this episode where we can talk about the most famous grifter of all. But for now, let's go ahead and delve into our story today in this 99th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Grifters. Today, we're going to talk about a woman named Sandra Louise Singers. She was born on July 24, 1937, in Oklahoma City, to mom Mary Van Horn, who had some Dutch in her ancestry, and father Mahendra Singh. Now, I looked around to try to figure out the origins of her last name, but there really isn't anything out there like it, because it seems as though her father's last name, which is common in India, and it's spelled S-I-N-G-H. His name was taken and an E-R-S was added onto the end of it to come up with the name Singers. And as we go through the details of Sandra Singer's life, you won't be surprised when you learn that through the years, she would provide a number of varying stories regarding her background and origins, and much had been tough to confirm. Her family would later suggest that perhaps her birth certificate was a forgery and her ethnic background could have been any number of things. There are some conflicting reports about Sandra's background as a youth. Some who knew her when she was young would say that she was a child of a decent, upstanding family who would eventually take issue with Sandra's apparently wild and peculiar and somewhat deviant behavior. Sandra herself would make the claim that her father was a laborer and her mother was a sex worker from Oklahoma who moved to California sometime in the 1950s. I read another article that said the family all moved to Los Angeles shortly after she was born. Following that, when Sandra was three, her father apparently abandoned the family and this was the catalyst for her mother to turn to sex work to support her children as a single mother. Sandra said by the time she was eight years old, she had been sexually abused by numerous adults. Eventually, mom made the certainly difficult decision to place her children up for adoption. When Sandra was 13 years old, she was adopted by Edwin and Mary Chambers, along with a seven-year-old boy named Howard, and her name was officially changed to Sandy Chambers. Sandy would be permanently separated from her biological siblings following the adoption and moved to Carson City, Nevada. At some point in the future, her name morphed and she would start going by the name Sante. But I wanted to start referring to her as Sante now, but I will pinpoint the period of time when she officially makes the change. And within a couple of years of having been adopted into the Chambers family, Sante's adopted father, Edwin, allegedly began sexually assaulting her over a sustained period of time. Those who knew Sante in middle school and high school knew very little about her. They knew she was from California, and they knew that she was adopted. Classmates described her as somewhat of an unusual girl, but she was very pretty, 
different because of her part Indian heritage. She was also much more mature and sophisticated than her peers. She was a very bright student, and she worked for the high school newspaper, ascending to co-editor by the time she got to her senior year. She was active in several extracurriculars, she ran for student council, and she participated in several theater productions. And her adopted family showered Sante with the best clothes, they took her horseback riding and skiing every season. She had everything. However, there was the fact that she was being sexually abused behind closed doors. There were small signs of troubling behavior starting back in high school, but it was really nothing to call home about. In eighth grade, Sante purchased cheerleading uniforms for herself and her friend. And mind you, neither one of them were cheerleaders. During games, the two of them would rush out and lead some cheers before the real cheerleaders had a chance to get out there. And dreamers, that is just a small indicator and quite foreshadowing of the things Sante would eventually become capable of. In 1952, Sante graduated from high school and shortly thereafter married her high school sweetheart, but that would only last three months. Around the same time, Sante had enrolled in secretarial classes with her best friend, Ruth, and the two decided to move to Sacramento. And within a year, they moved to San Francisco, and then in another year, they moved again, this time to Santa Barbara, where they both enrolled at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where they took some journalism classes. It seems a bit strange for her to keep bouncing around everywhere with her best friend and continuing to take the same classes together and everything. But then towards the end of the semester, Sante used Ruth's boyfriend's father's name to open a credit card account at a local department store and charged $400 in purchases, and then she vanished. So it seems as though Sante stayed somewhat attached to her friend because she had an agenda. And I believe she was probably using her friend the whole time. And this would not be the first time Sante would fleece people out of their money. So the following year, Sante married an army officer by the name of Lee Powers. Now, I don't know if he married her because he generally felt as though she was the one and loved her, or if he married her because it was the right thing to do in his mind because she told him that she was pregnant. Turns out she wasn't. The couple would stay together for a little more than a year until at one point, Lee decided that in his post-army career, he wanted to be a teacher. And that seemed to turn Sante off. It's not clear if she preferred him in the military, if she liked the traveling, or if she liked him being away or deployed, but also him discharging from the army and going to college and settling down with him working as a school teacher possibly meant becoming a suburban housewife, and that was not something Sante wanted. So she left the marriage in 1957. The same year she divorced Lee, Sante, now 23 years old, married again, this time to an on-again, off-again high school flame named Ed Walker. The couple would end up settling down in Sacramento, California. Three years into the marriage, on Christmas Day of 1960, their home caught on fire. And this would become the first arson Sante, 26 years old at the time, was suspected of committing in order to collect insurance money, though it is unclear if she was investigated for it at that time 
or if this is inferred based on the pattern of behavior she would go on to display in the years to come. The fire completely destroyed the kitchen, but the rest of the house survived and Sante was able to collect $10,000 for her losses. Also in 1960, Sante had her first known brush with law enforcement when she was arrested for shoplifting a hairdryer. It is following this arrest that she dropped her given name and began going by Sante. She also decided that the money that she received from the insurance for the fire damages was not enough and sued them for $6,000 more, claiming further damages to property and belongings. And then on September 27, 1962, when Sante was 28 years old, she gave birth to her and her husband Ed's only child, Kent. Then, Within months of Kent's birth, Sante was hit with a pretty major scandal. Her name appeared in their local newspaper, calling her out for having an adulterous affair. How awkward is that to have your name printed in the news because of an affair? I don't know what the laws were on the books at the time. I could only find current laws, but as it stands, 19 out of 50 of our states still have adultery statutes on the books but it is rarely prosecuted. That would be really something interesting to look into one of these days, adultery being illegal, not just here in the United States, but around the world, and especially how in some countries those laws single out women specifically, and also how implications of adultery can quite possibly be used as a mitigating factor when a woman, and men also, are killed, and the adultery is viewed as the provocation. It could bring a murder charge down to manslaughter, theoretically. Sorry, off topic. I just thought it was interesting. And something private, like your name being put in the newspapers because of an affair, used to be a thing. But anyway, Sante apparently had been having the affair with one of her husband's clients for about two years. So yeah, that made the news, I guess. On December 31st, 1963, Sante again arranged for her home in Sacramento to be burned to the ground this time. I guess she preferred doing these acts of arson on or around holidays since the first time it was on Christmas Day and now the second time was on New Year's Eve. Maybe she's thinking there will be less of an investigation or maybe there will be a slower response because of the holiday. I don't know. Who knows what this woman is thinking? So she collected the insurance money again, but this time she took the money and moved into a condo in Burbank to quote-unquote start a new life, which is what I read in a report, though I'm under the impression she went without husband Ed. They didn't divorce right away after the adultery allegations, but I'm not clear if she went with Ed to this new condo or not, or if she took her son Kent with her or not. But I think she at least went without Ed. So over the course of the next year, maybe a little longer, Sante began opening numerous credit card accounts using a variety of names, eventually racking up more than $20,000 in credit card debt. Now the report that I read said that she could not pay off the debt, but let's be real. She probably had no intentions of paying anything off. She was eventually arrested for all of the credit card shenanigans and was slapped with 17 grand theft charges. By 1966, 32-year-old Sante had taken up with a new boyfriend named Clyde, and apparently they were like two peas in a pod because he was down with Sante's antics. 
So together, they would steal stuff. What specifically, I was not able to ascertain, but just stuff, you know, things you would find in a house, maybe electronics of the time, jewelry, furnishings, things like that. Because what they would do was take all the stolen items to a house that Clyde owned in Palm Springs, California, and then they burned the house down, filed the insurance claim listing all of the stolen things that they had stockpiled in the house and were able to collect on that. Also around the same time, Sante had a home in Laurel Canyon, which is a Los Angeles neighborhood located in the Hollywood Hills area of the Santa Monica Mountains, so you know it's not too shabby. And it was given to Sante as a gift from her husband Ed, you know, the one she committed adultery on. Yeah, he gave her a Laurel Canyon house. Well, she burnt half that house down too and collected the insurance payout on that as well. By 1967, Sante, 33 years old by this time, filed for a divorce from Ed finally. She had Kent with her the majority of the time, but they tended to move around a lot, never really settling down in one place. Over the next couple years, Sante was still in this relationship with Clyde and was still continuing to pursue her career as a professional menace. In 1968, she caught wind that her now ex-husband, Ed, has a new love interest. And in an anger-fueled rampage, she went searching for said love interest. She smashed up some of Ed's car windows. And a few weeks later, she managed to track this girlfriend down in a parking lot and proceeded to assault her by grabbing this poor woman by the hair and dragging her around. And then on Christmas Eve, the animosity towards Ed culminated in Santa and Clyde attacking Ed by firing a gun at him, but the gun was loaded with blanks, fortunately. By the early 1970s, Santa was getting into her late 30s. Her son Kent was about to turn double digits. Yeah, 10 years old. So she decided to drag him into her life of crime by having him sneak into houses and steal things at her behest. Now, it might be worth mentioning that Sante fancied herself as a very high society type of woman. She had a dramatic look about her that has often been compared to Elizabeth Taylor. She was beautiful, no doubt about that, and she played it up as much as she possibly could. Yet all the while, all of this nefarious behavior is going on in the background. She was always very glamorous, with big hair, lots of makeup, Dripping in jewels, I mean, she really did look like a Liz Taylor knockoff, to be honest. Her attorney would later on sum it up pretty aptly when he said she always tried to give off this air of innocence and femininity, when the reality was she was a pretty hardcore bitch. There was just this side of Sante that thrived when it came to committing crimes and creating mischief in her life and in the life of her son. And she really had no shame about it, known to do some pretty brazen things. But that probably goes without saying. Someone had shared a story about Sante. She was at some night spot, like a restaurant or a bar, and she saw hanging on a chair was an unattended mink coat. Sante decided that she wanted that coat, so she walked over and took it. We'll come back later on to this mink coat incident a little bit later in the story. 
And it was apparent that when it came to marriage, Sante had been looking for just the right guy, meaning a guy with a lot of money, and she was quite unapologetic about it. Her own son, Kent, said that she obsessed over it. And finally, she pretty much hit the jackpot in 1971 when she met Kenneth Kimes Sr. He was a self-made millionaire with an estimated net worth at the time of about $22 million, which when I put that into the inflation calculator would be about $140 million today. He earned his fortune in real estate and construction and from purchasing and reselling hotels in Anaheim, California that were in close proximity to Disneyland. Now, it isn't quite clear when Ken and Sante got married or even if they really did or not, because according to her son, there never really was a wedding or anything that officially took place. He described it as sort of a transition. I've read reports that Sante and Ken never did get married, but she did take his last name regardless. And finally, Sante had Ken, a man who was able to give her everything she ever wanted in life. The most amazing and glamorous lifestyle. They drove the best cars. She wore the best and most expensive designer clothing. They ate at the finest restaurants in town. It was definitely something Sante obsessed over, a lifestyle that she would do anything to maintain. Anything. Even though Sante had finally married up, according to her son Kent, Sante's menacing tendencies did not cease. As a matter of fact, he said she seemed to have gotten worse. She ramped up the shoplifting and other criminal behaviors. And Kent also said that his stepdad didn't really seem to mind at all. Now, I'm not so quick to feel Ken's perspective is 100% accurate when it comes to what Ken knew or didn't know or was okay with or not okay with, because I wouldn't be surprised if Sante was able to manipulate both her son and her husband into thinking what she wanted them to think and knowing what she wanted them to know. Ken thinks his stepdad lacked a certain spark in his life and his mom was able to bring about a certain amount of excitement that he really enjoyed. If that excitement included his wife being a shoplifter, maybe he might not have been all that opposed to his paramour's cunning ways after all. But let's talk more about Ken and Sante. When Sante met Ken in 1971, she was actually working as a political lobbyist for a healthcare firm based in Southern California. Ken was a transplant from Oklahoma's Dust Bowl He owned that chain of hotels and the construction business, and he met Sante in Palm Springs. He was six years removed from his divorce from his first wife, and 18 years older than Sante, and he was quite smitten with her. In an interview with Vanity Fair, one of Ken's relatives talked about how beautiful and fun Sante was to Ken. She catered to his needs. She completely doted on him, and he was really, really into her. But at the same time, Ken's family couldn't quite put their finger on what it was about Sante that felt off. It would end up taking quite a long time for them to puzzle piece everything together. And we've gone over a few of the things swirling around in Sante's background. Ken's family recalled Sante insinuating that she was descended from royalty, 
Then she would say she was related to various celebrities. The only things they felt like they knew for certain was that she hailed from Oklahoma like Ken and she was brought up in Nevada. With Sante in his life, Ken livened up for the first time in a long time and his family noticed the change right away. And he was also blowing money on Sante in ways he had never been known to do before. He bought her homes in Hawaii, in the Bahamas, and in Vegas, and they maintained a staff at all of them, which we will talk in more detail about later on. And Ken showered Sante with magnificently huge diamonds and jewels. As I said, Sante was still interested in running her scams, though. But now she had a little bit more to work with now that she had Ken Kimes and his money in her corner. She came up with this scheme, and it's been reported that Ken was in on it. But undoubtedly, Sante was the mastermind behind it all. It was also something that was going to bring about some excitement and attention to Ken at the same time. So at the time, shortly after they met in 1971, you know, the bicentennial of the United States was approaching on July 4th, 1976, which would have marked the 200th anniversary of the adoption of the Declaration of Independence, effectively parting ways with British rule, though the American Revolution would carry on for several more years following the signing. So Sante and Ken came up with this idea to try to capitalize on the bicentennial by printing and selling commemorative posters and bumper stickers. But here's the thing. There was a thing called the Bicentennial Commission, and they were charged with overseeing all things Bicentennial related. In order to make and sell merchandise, businesses and retailers were required to obtain approval from the commission, and Sante and Ken did not do this. Sante obtained official letterhead, and had the audacity to use them for her official press releases in order to promote their business. She touted Ken as the, quote, honorary bicentennial ambassador of the United States of America, unquote. According to a 2000 article in Vanity Fair, one of Sante's press releases on pilfered bicentennial letterhead said, Mr. Kimes has been recognized by the heads of state and the United Nations and given recognition for his contributions among the world of school children. Okay, that's awkward. Anyway, Sante actually pulled it off. She got the Bicentennial Commission to recognize Ken. And as a promotional event for the business, she booked Ken to lead the Pledge of Allegiance at the 1973 Rose Bowl. She, along with Ken, was also able to set up a meeting with then First Lady Pat Nixon in order to promote their business. But Sante wasn't done yet. Do you guys remember the White House party crashers back in 2009 when Real Housewives of Washington, D.C. star Michaela Salahi and her husband Tariq snuck into a state dinner at the White House, which was quite an embarrassment for President Obama's security staff? Well, Sante Kimes and her antics would have put them to shame with her own party crashing. In early 1974, she and Ken crashed four high society parties in Washington, D.C., which included a party being hosted by Gerald and Betty Ford. 
At the time, Ford was still vice president, though he would ascend to the office of the presidency later that year when President Nixon stepped down amidst the Watergate scandal. And there is a picture of Ken and Sante facing Gerald and Betty Ford shaking hands. So yeah, that's what Sante was able to bring into Kent's pretty humdrum life. They were subsequently investigated by the FBI when it was revealed that they managed to slip past the Secret Service. But Sante, true to form, addressed the issue publicly and said, Mr. Kimes has only the interest of America at heart. We just care about unity and getting rid of cynicism in the world. In September of 1974, Sante was arrested and charged with grand theft for shoplifting from a store in Newport Beach, California. She was given a $250 fine and two years of probation. Then four years after Ken and Sante met, on March 24, 1975, Sante gave birth to their son, Kenneth Kimes Jr., and we will refer to him as Kenny to keep them straight. Ken and Kenny. Kent, remember, is Sante's oldest and Kenny's half-brother. While Ken had two grown children from his first marriage, he was very happy with the arrival of Kenny. As for Sante, she was already 40 when she had him, and she was extremely protective over him. She hired nannies to help take care of him, and when he got to the age to start attending school, Sante shut down any possibility of her boy attending public school, so he was tutored at home. She did not think any school was good enough for her boy. And she also had a great deal of irrational fears about sending him to school. And she monitored everyone who interacted with Kenny. She was like helicopter mom on steroids. When Kenny turned five, the Kimeses purchased a large home in Las Vegas, which was adjacent to the Las Vegas National Golf Club. Those who got to know the family said Kenny seemed like a pretty shy kid, that he didn't interact too much with the other kids in the neighborhood, and he was kind of an oddball. They also got the feeling that he was a little bit lonely and yearned for some kind of interaction with other kids, but his mom would not allow it. According to Sante, Kenny was a genius, and she didn't want him around other kids. Eventually, she allowed for a few hand-picked friends for him to associate with, but they had to be pre-screened by Sante first. They did know the friends could tell that something just wasn't right at home. Kenny sometimes acted like he hated his mom. Then in the next minute, he was back to normal. Dreamers, it sounds like Sante was driving him a little bit bonkers with her neurotic comportment. Then in April of 1975, Sante's older son, Kent, well, he was following in his mother's footsteps, it seemed. He was arrested for stealing surfboards. Upset that he got caught, Sante left him with Ken's nephew for what she said was going to be a couple of hours, and it ended up turning into more than a month. By the end of 1975, she started referring to herself as Mrs. Kenneth Kimes, and it was also around that time that the family moved to Hawaii. Between 1976 and 1977, Kent would end up bouncing back and forth between his mom's place and his dad's place. But eventually his father, Ed, filed for full custody, which he was awarded. 
On April 17, 1978, the Kimes' home in Honolulu burned to the ground, and it was strongly suspected that Sante set the fire in order to file an insurance claim. You think? Fire investigators determined that the cause of the blaze was arson, but the insurance paid it out anyway. It was not long after that that Ken was beginning to take issue with Sante, so they briefly separated, but eventually they would reconcile. In 1978, Sante started some different insurance scams, and Ken seemed to be going along with it, but how much or how little his culpability was debated. The couple hired a Texas attorney named Charles Catterlin. Sante had made a claim with her insurance carrier in the amount of $100,000 for a tapestry she said was stolen from their home in Oahu, Hawaii. But the claim was denied, citing the non-existence of any sort of tapestry worth that much. So Sante wanted to file a lawsuit against the company. So as the attorney began to work putting the case together, he began to side with the insurance company. That the tapestry was never in the home, nor did Sante ever own it. Making matters worse, Ken's older sister, who resided with the Kimeses in the Hawaii home, provided sworn testimony in her deposition that she had never seen the tapestry in the home. This caused Sante to become infuriated with Ken's sister, who was quite elderly at the time, according to relatives. So Sante started keeping her locked in the house and would not give her any food. But eventually, the family was able to get her out of there. According to Vanity Fair, that attorney they hired, Charles Catterlin, he had this to say about the Kimeses. Mr. Kimes was very quiet. He rarely said anything. Sante was the opposite. We'd be sitting at a table in a restaurant, and 10 minutes in, she'd get up and greet someone or take a phone call. She would sweep into places and demand a telephone. The governor was going to call her or somebody else, and people just rushed to help her because she looked like she had money. He even noticed that Sante knew more about fraud laws than anyone he had ever met before. So Sante did her homework. What a lot of nerve this lady has, right? I mean, she files a fake claim for some non-existent tapestry, and then it gets denied, and then she has the audacity to sue? That's just crazy. So Charles would later find out a lot more about his client from the insurance company itself. One of their agents told him that Sante had previously filed false claims, including one for $30,000, reporting that a Rolex had been stolen. Sante also once test drove a Cadillac and just never came back. Sante and Ken also stiffed the attorney, never ponying up the retainer fee. But because he wasn't able to track them down, he was never able to have them served. The address he had on them in Hawaii, well, they were no longer there because the house burned down. While Charles was attempting to track them down, he ran a background check on Sante and found her rap sheet that was a mile or 1.61 kilometers long. Grand theft auto, petty theft, fraud, forgery. Sante had almost two dozen aliases, too. So yeah, his client knew a lot about the law because of all her experience as a criminal defendant. In 
then sometime in the summer of 1979, Sante's son Kent contacted police to report his own mother for keeping slaves in their various homes. But at the time, nothing was done and Sante wasn't investigated, though that report would come back some years later. Then sometime in 1980 or 1981, Sante had a plan for some sort of real estate scam, though the details of that are kind of unclear. She attempted to recruit the help of real estate agent Jeff David to assist her with the scam, but when she ran her idea by him, he refused to take part in it. And it was at that time, Sante either hired or attempted to hire a hitman to kill him. I looked for more details about that, but I was unable to find anything further. So fast forward to 1985. Things had been going along just as they had been. Sante was up to her antics, keeping busy raising Kenny Jr. When things suddenly started becoming known. The unsavoriness of Sante was not exactly the best kept secret anymore as she had been trying to keep it that way all these years. Remember that mink coat that we talked about earlier? You know, the one that she swiped in that bar? Well, Sante got busted for that and slapped with charges, and this was some five years after the fact in 1980. They were in Washington, D.C. at the time the theft occurred. Sante and Ken had left Kenny asleep in the hotel room and went down to the bar. That's when Sante saw the coat and took it. It was valued to be about $5,000. And Ken's family would later on say that whole thing was just for the fun of stealing it because Sante owned a number of mink coats that Ken had gifted her. So it wasn't like she didn't have a collection of her own. But the reason why it took so long to take Sante to trial was because she kept coming up with medical emergency excuses that prevented her from being able to travel to Washington, D.C., Five years, she was able to stall dreamers. But finally, she was forced to go to trial. But while the jury was deliberating, Sante just walked out of the courtroom and took off, got on a plane and flew back to California. The jury convicted her, but that was later tossed out because she wasn't present in the courtroom when the verdict was read. But a month later, Sante would be facing a whole new series of charges almost unheard of in modern criminal justice. Slavery. The following information I obtained from an article on a website called the Society of Former Special Agents of the FBI entitled Sante and the Slave Girls. It's the best information I found on the specifics of what she was accused of, so I'm going to share portions of that article with you. The investigation into Sante and Ken Kimes involving allegations of slavery was initiated by a call from the Honolulu Police Department to the FBI that they had received a call from a 16-year-old Mexican girl named Maria. She appeared at the police station and was first thought to have been a runaway. Because of this, the case was referred to the FBI. Maria didn't speak any English, so an agent who spoke Spanish was brought in to talk to the young girl. She informed them that she was from Mexico and she was hired by Sante in Las Vegas to work as a housekeeper as well as a tutor for Kenny in Spanish. Sometime later, Maria was brought unwillingly to Honolulu and kept inside their home in Portlock, 
a very exclusive suburb of Honolulu. Maria was forced to work seven days a week, and when her work wasn't up to the standard Sante expected, Maria was subjected to beatings. She had been burned with a hot iron, she was never paid, and she was kept locked inside the house, never allowed to leave, essentially imprisoned. At one point, she managed to finally escape, and that's when she sought help from the Honolulu police. As investigators began taking a look at Sante, they soon discovered that there were numerous cases that had been initiated involving Sante, but none of them were ever really thoroughly investigated. And that included the tip from Sante's own son, Kent. But for the time being, because the accusations being made involved the possibility of a civil rights violations case, it needed to be turned over to the United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division in Washington, D.C. In the beginning, the attorney who was assigned to the case at the Department of Justice was considering not prosecuting Sante because there had only been one victim. But soon, numerous complaints from various young women had been made against Sante, so it was decided that she needed to be prosecuted as the details of the enslavement were being corroborated by more than one person. They began to see a pattern once they spoke to the agent on Sante's case that was opened in Las Vegas. They found another young female Mexican girl who was brought to the United States illegally by Sante and Ken themselves. The cases were federal, so they decided to prosecute both the Hawaii case and the Nevada case in Nevada. And in the meantime, while trial was pending, the agents essentially had become the caregivers of the victims in the case. They were very young. They didn't speak English. Some of them were pregnant or had young children. All of the young women, all between the ages of 14 and 20, told the same stories. They were threatened, burned, pushed into scalding hot showers, beaten with belts and coat hangers, forced to work impossibly long hours, never paid, and held locked inside the various homes owned by Sante. A woman named Cynthia Montano was one of Kenny's tutors. She traveled with the family to Mexico and was instructed by Sante to seek out teenage girls who did not speak English and hire them to work as maids. She was instructed to reassure the families of these girls that they would be very well paid and well cared for. They'd have regularly scheduled days off and they would be allowed to travel freely to Mexico whenever they wanted. They were all subsequently smuggled into the United States by Sante and possibly Ken too, as his role in all of this is questionable. But rather than being given what they were promised, pay, days off, treated well, they were treated terribly by Sante. She placed them at the various homes that she owned to provide free labor. In other words, slave labor. As the case against the Kimeses was building, the media started paying attention to this extraordinary case of enslavement. Sante and Ken were both indicted by a grand jury and a warrant for their arrest was issued. They were a little bit difficult to track down, though. The FBI attempted to take them into custody in their Hawaiian home, but nobody was there. Eventually, the Kimeses were tracked down at a home in La Jolla, California, and both of them were taken into custody on August 3, 1985, and extradited to Las Vegas. Ken was released on bail, but Sante would be made to sit in prison to await trial. 
But somehow, Sante managed to talk a corrections officer into letting her out on December 30th, 1985. But she was quickly picked up when a bartender at the Elbow Room Bar in Vegas called in a tip that she was there. Her trial began two months later in February of 1986, and she was found guilty of 14 out of the 16 counts that she was facing, which included keeping slaves, transporting illegal immigrants into the United States, escaping from prison, and conspiracy. Sante by then was 51 years old and was sentenced to the maximum the judge was allowed to give her, five years in federal prison. In doing so, the judge told her that her acts were reprehensible, that she engaged in the long-standing acidity of bringing illegal immigrants into the United States, and has displayed a pattern of complete disregard of the laws of this country. Ken was allowed to plead guilty to some of the lesser charges and paid a fine. Sante would end up serving three years of her sentence. Some years later, her son Kenny said that those were the three greatest years of his life. His father not only welcomed friends into Kenny's life, he attended public school for the first time. Ken Sr. sold some of the motels that he operated and cut back on his demanding work schedule in order to spend more time with Kenny. Ken became one of the favorite neighborhood dads, one of the nicest guys, and he really took the opportunity to connect with the son in Sante's absence. Kind of makes you wish she'd stay in there forever, doesn't it? Or Ken Sr. would take Ken Jr. and just run away from her. He could have, but he didn't. Sante just had too much power over both of them. While she was in prison for the slavery thing, she was brought back to Washington, D.C. for the mink coat thing, for which she was convicted again and sentenced to three to nine years in prison. But she appealed it, and just before her 1989 release date, that conviction was overturned again. When she was released from prison, Kenny apparently had a visceral reaction to her return. So much so that not long after she got back, Kenny actually was reported to have assaulted her. But Sante Kimes was a woman who would not be stopped. She made arrangements for all of them to travel the world to celebrate her getting out of prison. Kenny was yanked out of school and they started bouncing around again from place to place. It got so bad that Kenny sent a letter with money to one of his friends, begging him to hire someone to kill his mom. The stability Ken was able to establish for his son was completely dismantled by Sante's mayhem machine. After Sante got out of prison, her former housekeepers, she essentially kept as prisoners, filed a $35 million civil lawsuit against the Kimeses. For the case, they retained the services of attorney Doug Crawford, and it immediately stood out to him how impossible it was for Sante to ever be pleased, and he could feel the terror that she rained down on her son, and likely his father as well. Doug told Vanity Fair that Sante had become obsessed with the civil action against her, and he quickly realized that Sante herself was very adept at interpreting the law as it is written. She drafted case summaries. She made pages of notes involving their strategies and plans. She had lists of witnesses. She drafted outlines of affidavits that she wanted. 
And all of that would be sent up to Doug almost on a daily basis with specific orders as to what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. Of Sante, he said, She was a very imposing figure and a persuasive figure, and you ended up doing what she wanted you to do. She called me honey or dear, but she also made it clear that the threat of malpractice hung over our relationship. Doug Crawford ended up settling the case. Then, in October of 1990, Doug's law offices in Las Vegas was firebombed. Of course, knowing what we know about Sante just makes the fact that he represented her in court automatically reeks of guilt on her part. But the FBI was unable to connect her to the crime. But everyone basically knew that she was responsible. She maintained from the beginning that the attorney representing the former housekeepers fabricated the entire story of them being abused, enslaved, and mistreated in an effort to go after their money. She made the allegation that their attorney, a man by the name of David Shutter, had ties with the Hawaiian Mafia, but he had actually been a neighbor of the Kimeses in Honolulu. In an effort to point the finger of blame for the firebombing at David Shutter, Sante spoke to Doug's secretary the next morning and said these words to her, Honey, I knew he would get you. Doug told Vanity Fair, She would torture maids to make them subservient to her petty needs. She would torture my office to fit her legal case. She has no empathy. I remember I went to Geronimo Way, and Dreamers, that's their Vegas house, to investigate the facts of the case. Upstairs, there is a long hallway with bedrooms off the corridor. Sante said, This is where the maids were. And I went in each room, and three or four rooms had deadbolts on the doors, on the outside. These were prison cells. I was looking at one, and I got chills. I turned around, and there was Sante. She had sneaked in behind me, and I got the look. I thought, she's going to kill me. It was this point in time where Sante is suspected of having committed her first murder. Elmer Holmgren, a man who was an associate of the Kimeses, had been the insurance adjuster who handled the payout for the fire at the Honolulu house back in 1978. While Sante had arranged for Elmer to work with her attorney Doug for whatever reason while he was representing her during the civil lawsuit, well, four months after Doug's office was firebombed, Elmer disappeared. He had apparently had too much to drink one night and confessed to a friend that he helped Sante set the fire at her Honolulu home in 1990, as well as firebomb her attorney's office. Elmer eventually decided to come forward with his information, and he went to turn informant for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, to provide testimony against Sante in the arson cases in exchange for immunity. Sometime in February of 1991, Elmer reportedly traveled to Costa Rica with Sante and Ken and was never seen again. I read one report that said they were driving and Sante, from the back seat, took a hammer and bashed Elmer in the back of the head who had been seated in the passenger seat, killing him instantly. 
His body was never found. Sante soon became acquainted with another Texas-based attorney named Gustav Buchkovsky. She explained to him that Elmer, who had been supposedly helping her with the insurance case and most recent house fire, was actually a fraud and disappeared on her. She retained the legal services of Gustav because she wanted to file a lawsuit against the insurance company for refusing to pay her claim for the damage at the Honolulu house. She was so angry with the insurance company that she, in 1991, actually tracked down their CEO who resided in Far Hills, New Jersey. She began following him around, and eventually she started issuing threats to do harm to him and his family. So we're starting to see what Sante is willing to do if things don't go her way. It seems that in July of 1992, Sante and Ken moved to the Bahamas again to try and start over. But in under two years' time, Sante's plans were drastically changed when Ken Sr. suddenly died of an aneurysm on March 28, 1994, at the age of 77. Sante was 59 by then, so the Liz Taylor thing had begun to wither away. Now, the old man had certainly showered Sante all those years with all the expensive things, everything that her heart desired during his life. But he made sure that after his death, the party would be over for Sante for good. And that, unfortunately, included the son that they had together, Kenny Jr. He knew what would happen. He knew Sante would manipulate Kenny and take everything from him. When the details of Ken's will were revealed, everything was left to his two children from his first marriage. Sante and Kenny Jr. were never mentioned. I didn't even read that he left them the $1 thing. And that's because he had written his will long before he ran into Sante. In 1963, and he never amended it. Sante managed to get by for a while. She was able to elicit sympathy by playing up the role of the grieving widow. But you know, that, like Sante, got old fast too. Because she was no longer in a position to play up her youth and beauty to land herself another sugar daddy, she was going to pass the baton onto her young, handsome son, whom she had molded into being just like her a manipulator, and a con. It also should be known that the way Sante managed to keep up her fantastical lifestyle following Ken's death was, get this, keeping the fact that he died a secret for almost two years. You heard that right. Ken's children from his first marriage did not find out about his death until two years after the fact. Ken really never granted Sante actual access to his money. All of his assets and his accounts were solely in his name. So when he died, Sante knew she was going to be out on the street. So her solution was to hide the fact that he died and eviscerate his entire estate. She started by using the social security number of a different Kenneth Kimes to put on his death certificate. According to the information Ken's older children outlined in Vanity Fair, 
Sante forged Ken's signature on numerous legal documents, and while his death had been unbeknownst to his heirs, she began bleeding his accounts dry, leaving almost nothing left by the time his family caught on. It took the Kimes family attorney more than a year to sort through the tangled mess of paperwork Sante created in order to obscure everything that she was doing. For example, in order to steal a $6 million property in Santa Barbara from Ken, Sante left behind a complex maze of a paper trail by using numerous fictitious corporations as a cover to hide her connection to the theft. So from the time Ken died in 1994 through about 1996, Sante was able to fleece his entire fortune. What she did with all the money... It's anybody's guess. I can't for the life of me figure out why this woman couldn't make the millions that she accessed during those two years last for her. If she had any kind of sense, she could have lived off of Ken's money for the rest of her life. Ken was worth millions. She could have taken everything, which she did, and fled the country and lived a comfortable life. But I guess there's no thrill in that but it seems as though she did try in some capacity to invest the money. She reportedly told some people that she made some bad investments along the way, including some sort of cigar smuggling operation in Cuba. So even then, with access to all of this money, she still wasn't doing anything that was truly on the up and up. But then Sante became involved with Sheikh Khalifa bin Jabir al-Tani, who was a part of the ruling family of the Arabic country of Qatar. Apparently, Sante had a meeting with him sometime in the fall of 1996 involving a potential new internet project. At least that's what he said, or that's what he was made to believe. His family were the owners of the Gulf Union Bank located in the Cayman Islands. One of their employees was a 55-year-old banker named Syed Bilal Ahmed. His work involved investigating problematic or suspicious accounts within the company. Well, on the evening of September 5th, 1996, Syed had a dinner meeting at a restaurant called the Androsian in the Bahamas. And following this meeting, Syed Ahmed was never seen again. This would be the second person that had some sort of association with Sante to have mysteriously vanished off the face of the earth. So we're starting to see a pattern here. Now, the only reason this information was uncovered was because Ken's older kids and rightful heirs by this time had become aware that their father was deceased and Sante was actively draining his estate. So they hired a private investigator named John Dottie to investigate Sante and attempt to track down as much as they could and to stop her. He discovered that Sante was maintaining accounts at the Gulf Union Bank. His investigation into them led him to believe that Sante and Kenny were linked to his disappearance. He postulated that Syed was perhaps becoming aware that there were some anomalies with her accounts, and Sante and Kenny invited him to dinner as a ruse to get rid of him to thwart any further investigation into their holdings. At the time, the Bohemian law enforcement looked into Syed's disappearance and did suspect Kenny and Sante. 
either one or both of them must have been involved, but they were never able to uncover any evidence to definitively link them to it, and they had no body. By the time law enforcement got to Syed's place of residence, it had been completely cleared out and wiped clean before police ever had the chance to get there and search for evidence. Ken's kids' private investigator believed that Sante would not have been able to do all of this unless she had some powerful connections. She always had the ability to present herself as a person of stature and importance, when the reality was she was a nothing and a nobody. Her son Kenny, later on years down the line, would confess to Syed's murder, admitting that he did so at the behest of his mother. He said together with his mom, they drugged Syed, and once he passed out, they held him underwater in a bathtub, drowning him. They dumped his body off the coast somewhere, and his remains were never found, and no charges would ever be filed against either Sante or Kenny, despite their confession. Sante, of course, denied knowing anything about Syed's disappearance. She denied any involvement and maintains the only reason Kenny would say something like that was because he was looking at a potential death sentence in another case. And we'll get to that. Someday, I hope. There's so much crime, huh? And dreamers, for all Sante has done, everything that she would be accused of, never, not one time, would she ever admit to any sort of wrongdoing. It was all everybody else's fault. The whole world conspired against her every step of the way. It's quite interesting to watch interviews with her and all the stammering and ridiculousness that spews from her mouth. I will get into one of her interviews towards the end of this episode. It is believed that some months prior to Syed's disappearance, Kenny had teamed up with his mom to become her full-time lackey, which is really sad. How different would Kenny's life have gone if he had just been able to be with his dad and developed a relationship with his older half-siblings? But no, Sante lorded over his life, controlled and manipulated him from the day that he was born, and he remained susceptible to it, even into adulthood. At least that's a common belief. There are those who think he's just as psychotic or sociopathic as his mother. Though I don't quite understand why he didn't pull away from Sante when he got older. Maybe he just felt beholden to her for whatever reason. Maybe he grew up afraid of her, and that never changed seeing as how he saw how she controlled his dad his entire life. I mean, yeah, he's responsible for his own actions, but I do believe he would not be where he is now if not for Sante's unrelenting influence. And it only got worse once his dad was gone. Kenny was on the straight and narrow by 1996. He was 21 years old. He was attending school at UC Santa Barbara. But Sante went and convinced him to drop out. Can you believe this woman? Talking her child into walking away from getting a really solid education. That just goes to show how little Sante values putting work into things in life. While Kenny was attending college, he rented a room from Alan and Trish Kajjay. And they got to see firsthand what Sante was like. 
how she treated Kenny, and they were very troubled by what they were finding out about this woman. They felt as though Kenny's feelings about his mom were a little bit muddled. When she would come visit, she slept in Kenny's room, even if other options were available, and she insisted on it. Now, dreamers, I guess I really hadn't thought about it much before because I don't have a son. I have a daughter, and if we sleep in the same bed for some reason, neither one of us would have had an issue with it, except I think we're both blanket hogs. But if other options were open, I'm pretty sure we'd both prefer that. As for my husband, I'm fairly certain he would not like sharing a bed with his mom. I'd even go so far as to say he'd rather sleep on a cement slab. My husband's dad is coming to visit us next month and we're going to give him our bed. And I'm going to sleep in my daughter's room with her and David's going to sleep on the couch. I mean, that seems like a normal arrangement for a visit. But yeah, the couple Kenny lived with thought it was weird that they slept together when she visited. There would later on be some insinuations that there was some incest involved in their relationship, but that's never really been substantiated, so I'm not even going to go into it. The Kaches described either witnessing or overhearing some really vicious fights and arguments. And then there was like a makeup period. If Kenny had any girlfriends, Sante despised them all. And she controlled his finances too. If he ever pushed back, she pushed harder, always coming out on top of every argument. I can just see her relentlessly verbally beating Kenny down into defeat. Then, according to the Kajjays, Sante made some kind of attempt to run a scam on them So after that, they refused to have any more to do with her. She was no longer welcome in their home. Even Alan Kajje, who was a former California Highway Patrol officer, said it took him some time, but he eventually came to realize how evil of a woman Sante Kimes really was. They had no problem with Kenny, though. He really seemed to have become a part of the family while he stayed there attending school. He'd help babysit the kids. He was excellent in the kitchen. Completely, 100% trusted the young man. Kenny moved out sometime late in 1995, and it seemed from there, his life began showing some cracks. Sometime in the fall of 95, a female student at Santa Barbara reported a complaint against Kenny. They allegedly became involved in some kind of verbal altercation when it escalated to the point where Kenny began screaming at her, yelling at her that she was a classless bitch, a slut, and a whore. Things that he had been known to say about Sante, too. The last time Alan and Trish Kachje ever saw Kenny and Sante was in late 1997. They unexpectedly showed up at their front door. They made with a small talk that Alan was thinking, okay, let's get to the point here, because he knew they wanted something. Kenny wanted to buy a gun off of him. Alan, the former CHP officer, is also an avid gun collector, and he wisely refused to sell any of his guns to Kenny. I mean, come on, how dumb do they think this guy is, right? They already know Sante is shady. They know she's manipulative. They've witnessed violent fights between the two. 
They may have once trusted Kenny, so much so that they'd even left their children in his care. I mean, that's the utmost of trust. There may have been a time Alan would have done business with Kenny, but even if he had come without Sante, he probably knew better. By the time they came looking to buy a gun, it was abundantly clear that Kenny was totally brainwashed by Sante. They could see that he was not a strong enough person to fend her off. Eventually, Kenny and Sante would get their hands on a gun. David Kasdan had been acquainted with Sante and Ken Kime Sr. since the 1970s when he was in the insurance adjustment business, but he retired from that and opened his own copying and printing business. It's believed that David and the Kimeses met in Vegas, but those close to David don't recall him ever talking about the couple all that much, that is until sometime in January of 1998. They began hearing him discussing Sante more frequently. There was an occasion that Sante and Ken Sr. were sued and were hit with a judgment of $150,000. And because of this, they asked David for a favor. Could they put the deed to their Vegas home located on Geronimo Way in his name to avoid their home being susceptible to a lien resulting from that judgment. David agreed to do the Kimeses this favor. Now, I read one report that this transaction took place sometime in the 1970s, but I also read a conflicting report that it took sometime in the 1990s. But either way, David did do this favor for the Kimeses, and the deed was transferred into his name. Sometime later, David asked Sante and Ken to remove his name from the property, at which time they said they would, and he believed they did, but they actually hadn't. It wasn't until January of 1998 that David realized that his name was never removed from the deed. Now this is almost four years since Ken Sr. passed away, right? Sante had been able to live off of Ken's money either until it was gone or his older kids found out their dad was dead or both. So once that dried up, Sante needed to find other ways to scam people, money, and property. Like I said earlier, she's no longer in a position to land herself another sugar daddy. And by 1998, Sante was 63 years old. Can you guys imagine? That's like your grandma pulling off con jobs, right? So David came to find the house was still in his name when he received a large, official-looking envelope from some bank in Florida that he had never heard of. When he opened it, it turned out to be all the payment arrangements paperwork for a $280,000 loan taken out against the Vegas house in his name. Sante had tried to sell the house, but she was not able to do that because she didn't own it. David technically did. So what do you suppose Sante's next move would be? You guessed it. Good old arson, one of Sante's favorite pastimes. On the night of January 31st, 1998, New Year's Eve again, around 11.20 p.m., the fire department received an emergency call. The Kimes' house on Geronimo Way in Vegas was on fire. And it was clear at the onset that this was an arson. A fire intentionally set, meant to burn the home down to the ground. 
It did not take long for Clark County Fire Department arson investigators to uncover information regarding the deed to the home. Only days prior, the house had been transferred out of David Kasdan's name over to someone named Robert McCarran. And immediately following that, a huge fire insurance policy had been obtained, also in Robert McCarran's name. So who is this Robert McCarran? Well, he was a homeless man Sante and Kenny sought out at a local homeless shelter. According to Robert, Sante and Kenny essentially held him against his will for several weeks. He was beaten, and they instructed him in posing as the owner of the home. Following the fire, Robert managed to escape and would later provide the information he had regarding the Kimeses to law enforcement, which included the fact that Kenny Kimes was the one who set the home ablaze. Not surprisingly, Sante tried and failed to collect on the $500,000 claim that she filed for the fire, as the insurance company refused to pay, citing the investigation revealing that the cause of the fire was arson. Remember, it was about this time that David began discussing the Kimeses with friends and colleagues, sharing with them the fraud that they had committed by taking out a loan in his name against the house, which was what they turned to once the fire insurance wasn't paid out. A friend of David's who was an insurance adjuster, as well as a private investigator, began looking into Sante and what she was up to. And he was pretty convinced that Sante was either going to use that fire insurance money to run off or possibly try to bribe David into agreeing to report the loan was authorized. His investigation also uncovered the forged documents, which, by the way, included the help of a notary public who agreed to help with the forgeries, who would later also provide testimony into her role in the scam. These forged documents were used to obtain the loan against the Geronimo Way home. David's friend, after finding out what Sante had done, began to fear for David's safety. Sante had attempted to appeal to David by asking him to tell the bank that he authorized the loan, but he refused. She began ratcheting up the pressure, which included making a number of phone calls, where she left some very threatening and ominous messages. And David's friend told him, I wouldn't make a big stink about the forged documents or the shady notary public. You're going to get hurt. But David stood firm and continued to refuse to say that he authorized the loan. He contacted the bank that issued the loan, reported the fraud, and an investigation was immediately launched. And we all pretty much know by now what Sante's answer to threats to expose her is. It was around this time that David began receiving phone calls from Sante. It looked as though they were preparing to make their next move on David. Using the aliases Manny and Sandy Guerrero, mother and son, they rented a couple of rooms in a mansion located in Brentwood, about a 16-mile or 26-kilometer drive from where David lived. The owner of the home, Daniela Scaramuza, rented the two rooms. Santi and Kenny stayed in one, and their homeless prisoner, Robert McCarran, stayed in the other, telling people that he was their deaf valet. It didn't take long for the owner, Daniela, to become somewhat afraid of the Kimeses. She quickly noticed that not only were they both spying on her, 
they had also tapped her phone. It also became quite clear that Robert McCarran was not deaf, which is probably something that's really hard to fake. And then about a week into March, the Kimeses moved another guy in, a man by the name of Sean Little. Daniela contacted authorities in an attempt to have the four of them removed from her home, but she was informed that they could not assist her. So they stayed. On the night of March 12, 1998, David had dinner with a friend of his who investigated the loan for him, and they discussed the issues that he was having with Sante. Yes, he had helped Sante in the past, but he was getting ready to settle down into retirement and had no interest in having anything else more to do with Sante. David's friend was concerned, but it never occurred to him that David's life was in any kind of danger. He knew Sante was getting old, but what he didn't know was Kenny was in the mix. Nor did he understand the depths of their twisted mother-son relationship. This would be the last time he would ever see his friend David alive. David resided in Granada Hills, which is located in the San Fernando Valley area here in Southern California. Kenny, along with the accomplice they brought in, Sean Little, who would later testify against Kenny, went to David's house sometime on March 13, 1998. Because the entrance to David's house was protected by a wrought iron locked gate, it is believed that when Kenny came to the door, David willingly let him in. At some point, Sean Little claimed to have heard a single gunshot, and when he went to investigate, he saw David lying on the floor with the single gunshot to the back of the head. Kenny was standing over him with a gun in his hand. They then proceeded to clean up the crime scene. They wrapped David's body in trash bags. They placed him in the trunk of his own Jaguar and drove to Los Angeles International Airport. It is believed at this point Sante was picked up and she was an active participant in the disposal of evidence along with her son and their accomplice. They then tossed David's body into a rubbish bin located behind the Avis car rental lot and abandoned the Jaguar in a nearby airport parking space. His body was discovered the next day. The gun used to murder David was never recovered. According to later testimony, it was taken apart and disposed of in a storm drain. Two weeks after David's murder, Sante and Kenny moved out of Daniela's home much to her relief, I'm sure. And they also quickly got out of Southern California too, as they had become suspects as soon as David's body was discovered. David had been talking to his friends about the Kimeses and what they had done in terms of obtaining that loan fraudulently in his name, as well as the threats that they had been making. Law enforcement across several states, as well as the FBI, were tracking the pair as they made their way from Vegas to Louisiana to Florida and eventually ending up in New York. But officials were one step behind at every turn. The Kimeses would eventually be caught, and it would be the result of one small oversight on Sante's part that would end up having huge ramifications. And it unfortunately would not be before another person who crossed paths with Sante Kimes would lose their life. 
going back to January, you know that Sante had that $280,000 loan that she had taken out in David's name. She kept it in a checking account and she was in the market for a new car. She called up Parkway Motors in Cedar City, Utah. The dealer manager there, named Jim Blackner, was someone that Ken Sr. had done business with for many years. Sante was looking for a Lincoln Town car, and she specifically asked for one with really dark window tint. She had a 93 Lincoln, and she wanted a trade, plus $14,973.50 for a slightly newish pre-owned town car. Because Jim had done business with the Kimeses in the past, he had no problem accepting a check from Sante for the balance. But after the car was delivered to her in California, the check she gave to the delivery person bounced when Jim deposited it. She explained that there must have been a mix-up. Maybe she gave him a check from a wrong account, and she was pretty apologetic. Three more weeks passed, and Sante still hadn't settled the balance with the dealership, when she called Jim asking for a different car, explaining that the trunk was leaking. He was like, the audacity of this lady, right? But it didn't sound like Jim confronted Sante immediately about the money. Instead, he called up a friend of his, Lynn Davis, who also happened to be a detective with the Cedar City, Utah Police Department, and he decided to take a look at it to see what he could find. Well, Jim's detective friend found some interesting things in Sante's background, and that's putting it mildly. Because of the troubling things his check into the Kimeses, he went ahead and obtained a warrant for Sante and Kenny's arrest. He also contacted the LAPD, and he found that they were looking for the Kimeses regarding David Kasdan's murder. But the LAPD had nothing sufficient enough to get their own warrant for the Kimeses' arrest. So they did something a bit unusual. The LAPD were desperately searching for Sante and Kenny. They were working in conjunction with the FBI as the search had gone nationwide at this point. But nobody had a warrant for them, except for Cedar City, Utah. If they successfully brought Sante and Kenny Kimes into custody, would the Cedar City Police Department hang on to that warrant? so they'd be able to get them into custody and keep them into custody while they work through the mess that the Kimeses have been leaving in their wake. Yes, they would keep their warrant valid. This had huge implications because of all the crap that Sante did, up to and including a strong suspicion of murder. Nobody had enough to take the Kimeses into custody, though, except for the grand theft auto charge. The interesting thing was that the theft of the Lincoln town car, according to the sales manager who sold it to Sante, to him it didn't appear as though that the whole thing was intentional on Sante's part. She wrote that check to him on the account that held the loan money. She had the money. It was in the account, though it was under the name of an accomplice. What Sante didn't know was the minute David Kasdan called in and reported the fraud, that account was immediately frozen. She just had no idea. For once, Sante is thinking she's obtaining something legitimately. Well, sort of. But it would turn out to be the first domino to finally fall for Sante Kimes. Cedar City authorities were more than happy to cooperate. 
Now, the LAPD and the FBI just had to find them. While in Florida, it is believed that Sante heard about a woman in New York named Irene Silverman. She was 82 years old. She was a widow. She had once been a ballerina and a chorus girl. She was a New York socialite. And she was very, very rich. On the run from law enforcement, Sante had contacted Irene sometime in June of 1998. She introduced herself as Ava Guerrero, and she was inquiring about renting an apartment from her for her boss, Manny Guerin. And that's how this whole odyssey in New York began. Irene Silverman was always around a lot of people. She had many friends and a staff who she completely trusted. She was active, lively, vibrant, and in pretty good shape both physically and mentally for all of her 82 years. So when she inexplicably went missing the day after the 4th of July, for which she hosted a dinner for a couple of friends at her exclusive 19th century multi-million dollar Upper East Side home, not too many people were at first all that worried. She's Irene Silverman, everybody's friend. Everybody loved her. What could have possibly happened? In the years leading up to her encounter with the Kimeses, Irene never really left the home without a friend or a member of her staff. So for her whereabouts to not be known was strange, but she was always with someone. And her home was very secure. If she was inside, she was certainly safe. And many people knew or knew of Irene. She was very well known in Manhattan, but she did not particularly like being characterized as a wealthy socialite, as if she was some bored Upper East Side housewife. She would say, people think I'm rich, and I am, but I've always worked. Growing up during the Depression, Irene learned early on how to support herself. And that stayed with her for her entire life. In 1941, she married one of New York's most successful mortgage brokers, Sam Silverman. He provided her with a lifetime of financial security, including homes in France, Greece, Hawaii, and New York. But the couple never had children. When he passed away in 1980, Irene was left with his entire fortune. But she wanted to leave the stuffy, regal life behind for a more relaxed, unconventional lifestyle with a close-knit group of friends. Irene was colorful, dramatic, spontaneous, and intriguing. Everything Sante Kimes tried to be, but ended up having to fake, borrow, and steal to achieve it. Irene Silverman, she was the real deal. Her Upper East Side home was nothing less than palatial. French-inspired, with a ballroom, marble and oak floors and accents, walls covered with exquisite pieces of artwork and memorabilia. There was a rooftop garden that dazzled at night. She converted parts of the home into separate luxury apartments that she rented by the month 
for anywhere between $6,000 and $12,000 a month, depending on the level of fancy. Some of them were described as pretty grand suites. The people who stayed there, they were not just your regular visitors to New York. They were tycoons and celebrities, and almost all of them became friends of Irene's. Though Irene was an eclectic woman, she insisted that her tenants needed to be easygoing, but also exude a certain air of ambition, and she wanted the people around her to be fascinating. She would host art and history seminars and serve the finest wines and offered visitors expensive party favors. She was funny, and she easily commanded a room with riveting stories of her life. But don't take Irene for a pushover. When it came to business, she was on top of every detail, and she was keen to everything that was going on in her world, and her world was her home. So if Sante Kimes thought that she was going to come in here and hustle some old lady, she had another thing coming. On or about June 13, 1998, Kenny and Sante, along with a man named Jose Alvarez that they had hired, all piled into the green Lincoln and left Florida headed to New York. Sante had become aware of Irene, her home, and her situation, and from there, Irene was in her sights. She called ahead as Ava Guerrero just a few weeks before they headed to New York and asked about renting one of her apartments for her boss, Manny Guerin. The month before they left Florida, Sante had made another call to a title company using a different fake name to ask about the terms of the deed to 20 East 65th Street, Irene's place. She called again just to make sure there had been no changes made to the title of Irene's home to make sure ownership had not changed hands, which it had not. On Sunday, June 14, 1998, Kenny Kimes, presenting himself as businessman Manny Guerin, appeared at Irene's door, asking to speak to her. He said he was from Palm Beach and he was interested in renting an apartment as he would be in town for an extended period of time for business. At first glance, Kenny was impressive. He was charming, handsome, well-spoken, dressed to the nines, and very engaging. Sante groomed him well, didn't she? He told Irene that he was referred to her by a gentleman by the name of Paul Vacari. The Vacari family owned a butcher shop in Manhattan and were longtime friends with Irene. So yeah, the Kimeses did their homework. And once he name-dropped one of Irene's good friends... Kenny was as good as gold as far as she was concerned. Irene's guard was down, but not completely, as Kenny was unable to provide any references or ID, which was something she was a stickler for. He promised he would have all of the documentation she needed by the following day, but she still vacillated. Then Kenny pulled out his wallet and took from it $6,000 in cash one month's rent, and Irene was sold. She showed him to his apartment and gave him the keys. Four days after Kenny secured the apartment on June 17th, Sante called the title company and ordered a copy of the deed to Irene's property. On June 24th, 
she paid cash for the documents. That same day, she sent in a request to the Lawyer's Title Insurance Corporation for the documents needed to transfer a property. In the middle of all of this, she needed to figure out a way to obtain Irene's social security number. The property transfer transaction could not be done without it. So she first tried calling Irene with some good news. She's won an all-expenses-paid trip to fabulous Las Vegas, but in order to claim her prize, she needed to provide some information, including her social security number. And of course, Irene is not some gullible old lady like Sante took her for. She refused to give that information over the phone. Next, Sante called Irene's personal accountant. She said she was looking into possibly leasing one of Irene's apartments on a long-term basis and needed some of her information in order to run a background check, including her social security number. The accountant, too, refused to divulge Irene's personal information over the phone. At the same time, Irene started getting a not-so-good vibe about her new tenant, Kenny, whom she knew as Manny. He suddenly became uncommunicative. He was dodgy, distant, and attempted to avoid eye contact. I guess Sante could only coach him so much in prepping him for their lives together as grifters. He didn't want to let Irene's cleaning staff into the apartment to tidy up and water her plants. And Irene simply wasn't used to this. Then the staff began reporting to Irene that Manny slash Kenny had been having shady visitors, including a slovenly bedraggled old lady. And when she would come, he would take precautions to prevent her image from being captured on Irene's surveillance cameras. And she would stay for long periods of time. Irene took notice, too, of his attempts at avoiding cameras, turning away or looking down as he came and went. He crept in and out of the home in an unsettling manner. So concerned that something was wrong and perhaps her cameras were not capturing his image, she drew a picture of him herself. Yeah, Irene was an accomplished artist too on top of everything else. The drawing included notes about specific features that she noticed as well about him. Just in case. Irene's staff also noticed Manny slash Kenny and they did not like what they were seeing either. They felt like he was spying on Irene. When she was in her office or on the phone or speaking to visitors, they noticed him loitering nearby, attempting to be inconspicuous. The cleaning staff would find dirty footprints situated oddly close to Irene's office wall, as if someone was standing there with their ear pressed up against it to eavesdrop. One of the employees who had been with Irene for a very long time, who she considered family, named Menji Menjitsu, came to feel quite uneasy about the mysterious new tenant too, so much so that he confided in a couple of Irene's friends as to his concerns. He told them that this tenant actually tried to get him to turn his back on Irene and go work for him, telling him that Irene was exploiting him, she didn't care about him, and he would end up with nothing and no future there. Menji, along with several of the maids who heard Irene arguing with Manny slash Kenny about getting those references, approached her and they did not mince words. Do not trust this man. Give him his money back. 
Get the police over here and get him out. But Irene had confidence in herself. Her 80 plus years on this planet prepped her for people like him. She'd survived so many more dangerous things than this. She had no fear when it came to Kenny Kimes. Irene was also not unaware that he was spying on her. If she sensed that he was looking through a peephole in the door, she would flip him off. If she knew he was listening in on her conversations, she'd yell that Manny's next stop was about to be jail. She truly intended to handle this on her own, in her own way, just like she'd always done. Manny slash Kenny continued to avoid producing the references and ID for which he kept making excuses. He kept promising to drop them off with her agent who managed her estate, but he never did. So one week after moving in, Irene informed him that she wanted him out. She requested that her business manager serve an eviction notice immediately. Typically tight-lipped about her personal problems, this was not the case when discussing this awful tenant of hers. And she was angry about it, but she couldn't figure out what the heck his deal was. She knew something shady was going on. She was certain her place was being used as a home base for some sort of criminal activity. She just didn't know what, and she wanted to gather more evidence before reporting it to the police. Meanwhile, Sante was keeping busy herself. With Kenny in tow, they searched for a notary public to sign a deed transfer. On July 1st, Kenny met a notary and had him come over to notarize the documents, but he refused to do so because the documents had already been signed out of his presence, and, you know, that sort of stuff had to be done in his presence. The following day, on July 2nd, Kenny met with a second notary, but this time, Sante accompanied him and introduced herself as Irene Silverman. In the presence of this notary, the documents were signed and the deed transfer with Irene's fake signature on it was officially notarized. One of Irene's longtime friends, who had last seen her on June 27th, he noticed that Irene was being exceptionally careful about what she was saying, how she was saying it, and was locking doors as they went into various areas of the home to talk and discuss business. There was obviously something bothering Irene, but she really couldn't talk about it. She was afraid of putting others in danger, and she would know more the following week. Irene had scheduled a lunch date with the same friend on Thursday, July 2nd, but she called at the last minute to cancel, rescheduling for the following Wednesday but Irene would never make their lunch date. On Saturday, July 4th, the Independence Day was quiet around Irene's home. She had given most of the staff the weekend off for the holiday. That evening, she shared dinner with two of her friends, Elva Shikrelli and Carol Hansen. As they sat together in the kitchen, her friends could not help but feel that there was a sense of trepidation in the air that night. And then, as they ate, Irene directed their attention to her closed-circuit television. It was Manny slash Kenny coming in, hiding his face. That, too, filled them with dread. They sensed something evil, especially after watching him 
slither by on the TV. And they could not shake that feeling that they were being watched. Elva wanted to stay the night, but Irene insisted that she was fine. Elva stayed up until after midnight when she finally, albeit reluctantly, went home. Leaving Irene sitting there in the kitchen by herself, she was poised and confident. But Elva didn't share that sentiment, and it would be the last time she would ever see Irene. The following morning, Sunday, July 5th, 1998, Arcelia, one of Irene's employees, saw her at approximately 11 in the morning. She was in her robe and house shoes in her downstairs office. Irene asked Aracelia to take her dog for a walk, as well as a few other tasks around the house. And as I said, the rest of the staff was off for the holiday weekend, so Aracelia went about her workday. By about 4 p.m., she began to notice that the place was kind of quiet. And that's when it dawned on her. She hadn't seen Irene for a while. She looked around, called out for her, but she wasn't there. And this was unusual as she always knew when Irene came and went. She called up Menji, Irene's trusted longtime employee, and her accountant, and they too did not know anything about where Irene may have gone, nor had they heard from her. After about another hour of searching, they contacted law enforcement. Because of Irene's age, which was 82, the NYPD quickly began an investigation into her whereabouts. Whenever anyone under the age of 10 or over the age of 60 is reported missing, a large-scale neighborhood search is immediately launched, including checking hospitals, searching Irene's house top to bottom, and speaking to any potential witnesses and neighbors. And within a few hours, it became clear that someone else was missing too. Irene's newest tenant, Manny Guerin. Well, it just so happened that as the news of Irene's disappearance began to spread across New York, a detective was watching the news on TV when he saw the report and he saw the picture of the man that they were looking for, this Manny Guerin. But Manny Guerin, he soon realized, was actually a suspect he had been looking for in a case not related to Irene that involved the check fraud. His name wasn't Manny. It was Kenny Kimes. And the fraud also involved his mom, Sante. This detective quickly picked up the phone to call the investigating precinct, and he was like, hey, we've got your guy in custody and his mom, too. They were taken in the very same night Irene vanished. Soon, investigators in all the cases began putting it together. Everything that we have been discussing thus far in our story. This entire network of criminal activity being perpetrated across the United States, from Hawaii to California to Nevada to Utah to Florida to New York, as far-reaching as the Bahamas. They'd been trying to track this woman and her son, committing fraud, arson, and of course, several murders. So how was it the FBI and whatever other law enforcement agencies that were there after the crimes came to track them down in New York? 
Well, through the investigation, they were turned on to a petty criminal and part-time casino maintenance man out of Las Vegas named Stan Patterson. He had done some business with the Kimeses in the past, and this included selling them guns, including a 22 caliber handgun around the time that David Kasdan was murdered with a 22 caliber weapon. And that's what he was arrested for. He quickly rolled over on the Kimeses and agreed to inform on them. Well, on July 1st, four days before Irene's disappearance, the Kimeses called Stan Patterson and asked him if he was interested in a job managing an apartment in New York for her, and he agreed to come. But then he turned around and told the FBI what was going on, so they had it all set up for him to go out there and meet with the Kimeses while the FBI watched and waited. So two days later, after flying into New York's Kennedy Airport, on the evening of July 5th, a little after 8 p.m., 64-year-old Sante and 24-year-old Kenny were walking near Stan's hotel when the FBI and the NYPD swooped in and took the Kimeses into custody on that check fraud warrant out of Cedar City, Utah. Yep, that sure did come back and bite them in the butt. Unfortunately, it was just hours too late. Otherwise, Irene would have still been safe in her prized Parisian-inspired home, doing the things that Irene loved to do, being with her friends, having company, and enjoying her life. Sante, of course, feigning shock, began to cry out, What is this all about? as she and her son and their accomplice turned informant were being arrested and handcuffed. I didn't do anything. What are you doing to my son? He didn't do anything. Stanley didn't do anything. And she began apologizing to Stan, and she insisted on giving a bag that she was carrying to him, telling the officers, this isn't my bag, I want to give this bag to Stan. Inside this bag was $10,000 and Irene's identification card. And as Sante is doing everything she can to talk her way out of this predicament that she's found herself in, knowing damn well that she is taking in her final breaths of free air that she's ever going to breathe, her son Kenny, while standing there, being handcuffed, urinated in his pants. And I'm not quite sure what to make of that. So dreamers, we've gone through so many years and the laundry list of criminal activity that Sante has perpetrated over the span of her lifetime. And she's always somehow managed to wiggle her way out of ever getting into any kind of serious trouble or serious prison time. All the fires, all the fraudulent insurance claims, all the scams and thefts that she's been behind, even with the slavery conviction, She only served three years for that. All of the years that she was with Kenny Kime Sr., who had the means and willingness to give her anything she wanted, it still didn't stop her, even dragging him into it to an extent, and eventually convincing her son, Kenny Jr., and joining forces with her. But the 21st century was on the horizon, Sante's criminal behavior was stuck in a time warp, thinking she's going to be able to continue to get away with all of her old-fashioned schemes 
in a world that was becoming more and more technologically advanced with each passing year. And here we are looking at this case with Mrs. Irene Silverman. I mean, what did Sante think that she was going to do when she got rid of Irene? The general thought is Sante planned to obtain a large loan and use Irene's property as collateral. But New York real estate law is very complicated, and transferring a deed is a transaction full of complexities. What Sante also didn't realize is that Irene had already willed her estate and the home to the Kobe Foundation. As Irene had no heirs, and in honor of her mom, this foundation promoted education and research into needlecraft and other fashion-related arts. It also served as a tax shelter, too. So should Irene pass away, everything would be funneled into the foundation. And that leaves the question, how did Sante think she was going to be able to pull this con off? Nobody really knows for sure. But probably the whole thing was much more complex than Sante likely expected. And I think that's where the answers to this can be found. Sante Kimes thought that she was smarter than everybody else. When I think of her dreamers, I think of a snake. And no offense to snakes, but I just picture her slithering through life, zeroing in on a victim and striking without warning, taking whatever she wants from her prey and then slithering away onto the next. Sante thought that she was impermeable, untouchable. And you can just see the narcissism oozing from her in interviews that she's given. I watched one that she gave on Larry King Live, and I wanted to talk about that for a minute. Among other things, Sante said, I know justice is coming, and I know the world is going to help bring us justice, and this will not happen. Her appeals will go through. They have to or there is no justice in this country. In regards to Irene, the biggest injustice here is that there is no crime. They don't know where the woman is. The crime is manufactured. The world knows that New York is one of the most corrupt law systems in the world. This is all a premeditated murder of her own son. We will get into that in a little bit, but he could be facing the possible death penalty back here in California, and that's what she's referring to. That her son has done nothing wrong because there was no crime. There's a missing person, but there's no body, no evidence, no witnesses. She told Larry that she and Irene were friends, and this just really offended everybody that knew Irene because they would never have been friends. She said they met in 1994 and they became social friends. And then a few years later, Irene called her good friend Sante and told her that she wanted to sell her apartment because she had a lot of people around her trying to talk her into willing it to them. So she decided to sell it and she wanted Sante's help because she had a lot of connections and she said that she would be happy to help her good friend Irene sell her home. She told Larry that she never lived at the apartment. Kenny never lived there. They never rented from her. None of that happened. It's all a lie. Larry asked Sante about the various items she was found to be in possession of that belonged to Irene at the time of her arrest on the evening of July 5th, which included Irene's keys, her social security card, 
her passports, a deed to her house with forged signatures, transfer of ownership papers to a corporation Sante had set up, a 22 caliber handgun, a second gun in their car, a pair of handcuffs, pepper spray, and hypodermic syringes. Sante said, I am so happy you asked me this question, Larry. If anyone who believes in justice just reads the transcripts of the trial, you will see that all of that stuff was planted. Yeah, the old police planted all this evidence to frame me up excuse. Right. So Larry asked her, well, why you? And she said just because they were there. They were getting arrested for a bounce check for that Lincoln that she had bought in Utah, and they decided to basically frame them for Irene's disappearance just because it was convenient. Sante said that there were people around Irene who were trying to stop her from selling her house. That the police took them into custody, and then they went into Irene's house, gathered up all that incriminating stuff, and planted it on her and her son. Once they realized that Sante and Kenny were staying at Irene's home, they took all of Irene's personal effects and planted the evidence to frame them. And if they don't believe her, read the transcripts. That when they were arrested, the mayor and all the police went to the media with billboards and announcements that she and Kenny were guilty of Irene's disappearance. All the while, they're completely corrupting and murdering the Constitution. Now, what she's talking about is when the news was breaking that Irene was missing, they were taking images of Sante and Kenny that they had because they were searching for them. They had gotten that tip from that other detective who saw them on the news based on the surveillance video images, and he was the one to identify them. So they splashed their faces across the local media everywhere to try and find them because they wanted to find Irene quickly. Larry King rattled off the entire sequence of events leading up to her disappearance. Everything I told you from the time they contacted her using aliases to wanting to rent the room and to trying to find out information about the property and Irene all the way up until the time she went missing. Everything that we've gone over so far in this case involving Irene, all of it he threw at her and all of it, Sante says, are all lies. Every bit of it. He asked her about the slavery thing, and she said those immigrants just wanted money because they knew she was married to a very wealthy man and that his first children were the ones who planted those maids in order to go after her and her money. He asked about the mink coat incident, and she said it was her mink coat that was stolen. He asked her what her biggest mistake in life was. She said it was trusting the wrong people. He asked her, in her whole life, has Sante Kimes ever done anything wrong? And she said, no, no, I wouldn't say that. When I was young, I was homeless and I would steal to feed myself. Things like cheese. She also admitted later on in the interview to stealing a couple of tubes of lipstick. Larry asked her why the judge in her case called Sante the most degenerate person she had ever met in her courtroom. Sante said it was because she's part of the most corrupt political system in the world there in New York and she is a judge who was totally biased and wouldn't allow Sante to get up and take the stand in her own defense, which you and I both know is completely untrue. Sante said for 13 days during the trial, the judge imposed a gag order on her, which I kind of believe because she strikes me as a type of person who would interrupt and have outbursts in court, which is what ultimately happened. 
that she said the judge would not allow Sante to use the phone. She would not allow her to talk to her attorney or give him notes. She was unable to develop a strategy for her defense. And she said the jury was brainwashed and the sale of Irene's home was on the up and up. She did not benefit from Irene going missing because she needed Irene present in order to complete this legitimate transaction. Larry asked her about David Kasdan, but she said she really can't talk about that, but they're innocent of that too, that this is also a frame job by the LAPD. And again, Larry asked her, why you? And she said, because we just happened to be the local victims and it was a witch hunt and another police department that's corrupt as well. In this interview, Sante Kimes repeatedly pleaded with us, the viewers, the American people, to please read the transcripts of her trial and we will see the corruption. Larry interviewed Kenny after his mom and he's pretty much saying the same things that she was saying, but he's a lot calmer. But also at the same time, he is so much like her in so many ways. When the NYPD had Sante and Kenny in custody, a portrait of exactly what they were dealing with was beginning to come together. They had two of the most dangerous criminals in the country in custody. When they laid out all of the decades of offenses attributed to Sante, this is what they got. 16 shoplifting charges, theft, forgery, fraud, larceny, using stolen credit cards, using forged credit cards, using fake social security numbers, using fake passports, arson, multiple arsons, insurance frauds, enslavement, assault. And that's just the criminal stuff. Sante had at least a half dozen civil judgments against her in New Jersey, Nevada, and California. She moved from state to state. She used a roulette wheel of identities, either stolen, impersonated, or invented. Dozens and dozens of names this woman went by. And she managed to avoid paying not a single penny to any of those judgments. She thieved, robbed, stole, pilfered, looted, pillaged, embezzled, plundered, fleeced, and cheated her way through life. And if you put together the people that she is suspected of being responsible for killing or vanishing, add serial killer to the list. In that whole interview with Larry King, which went on for about 25 minutes or so, the only illegal things Sante ever admitted to was stealing cheese and stealing lipsticks. Now remember, Sante and Kenny categorically deny that they had anything to do with Irene's disappearance. And they would question whether there is even a crime to be investigated. Repeatedly, Sante told Larry, no body, no crime. That was like the family motto, I guess. When they were arrested, they were caught with Irene's things on them. There was no planting of evidence. Sante had a bag, remember, she was trying to push it off onto her accomplice, Stan Patterson. Between her and Kenny, they had Irene's keys, and not just one of her passports, several of them. They had her checkbook, 
her social security card, and other identifying documents, including old payroll stubs from when she was a chorus girl at Radio City Music Hall, as well as $10,000. In their car, the bounce check green Lincoln, they found several pistols, ammunition, 10 different styled and colored wigs, documents from about 10 people that were supposedly business associates of theirs, including the missing Elmer Holmgren, the dead David Kasdan, and the also missing Syed Ahmed. Also in the car were blank social security cards, power of attorney forms, real estate transfer forms, a notepad on which someone was practicing Irene's signature, handcuffs, an empty stun gun box, two syringes, a vial of flunitrazepam, which is a sedative, a knife, pepper spray, and an additional $30,000 in cash. Also recovered were eight microcassette tapes from recorders that Kenny and Sante clandestinely set up to record Irene's phone calls. That's where they found the recording of Sante attempting to ascertain Irene's social security number with the ruse that she had won a trip to Vegas. They also later turned up the forged deed transferring Irene's home to a made-up company called the Atlantis Group. And among the piles of paperwork the Kimeses had, they also had handwritten notes detailing Irene's bank accounts, business that she conducted, people that she interacted with, and who was going to be on duty the day after Independence Day. Remember Sante and those holidays that she liked to misbehave on. There were also notes regarding what to ask an attorney related to transfer of property in Manhattan, calculations involving taxes that needed to be paid when the transfer was completed, as well as a list of various aliases Sante was using while making all her various phone calls in setting up the deed transfer. And she also had a to-do list for Stan Patterson. Remember, he's the guy Sante offered a maintenance job at an apartment building in New York. Well, she was going to make him the building manager and task him with firing all of Irene's employees, evicting all of the tenants, and changing all the locks as soon as she took ownership of the building. So it's pretty clear what Sante's plans were, and the district attorney and the prosecutors on the case were convinced that they had enough evidence to prove that they are responsible for Irene's disappearance. But they were lacking two very important things, forensic evidence and a body. Despite this being one of the largest searches in New York history, and Mayor Rudolph Giuliani offering an $11,000 reward, and an exhaustive search through every single rubbish dump and river in New York and New Jersey, all of it turned up nothing. So what does the prosecution think happened to Irene? Well, the maid last saw her around 1130 that morning on July 5th, when Irene asked her to walk her dog and take care of a few chores. Investigators believe it was sometime within the next hour that she was last seen, that Irene was attacked just outside her office. It is likely that they used a stun gun to subdue her and then possibly used a sedative to keep her knocked out, and then she was suffocated. All of this would leave very little 
in the way of forensic evidence inside the home. It is believed she was wrapped in a plastic drop cloth, placed into their car, and dumped somewhere, either in a swampy area or possibly in a dumpster where she would have been taken to a landfill. And all of this was to be able to transfer ownership of Irene's home to themselves, and they got rid of her in order to be able to do it freely. And well, dreamers, this episode is already overdue and it's getting kind of long, but I didn't want to split it into two parts, so I'm just going to quickly sum up the story. Prosecutors had plenty of circumstantial evidence to move forward with taking both Sante and Kenny to trial for Silverman's murder. While recovering evidence in this case, they also uncovered enough for them to be taken to trial here in California for David Kasdan's murder, too. Irene's trial was going to take place first since they were taken into custody there. The trial captured the nation's attention because of the fascinating aspect of this being a mother-son crime duo, and this would be the first murder case tried in New York without a body. And it probably goes without saying that Sante Kimes was an annoying defendant. The judge ended up ordering her not to speak to the media anymore because she was caught passing a note to a New York Times reporter. In order to gain some control over Sante's court antics, the judge threatened to handcuff her if she didn't cooperate. And she levied restrictions on Sante's phone privileges as the judge believed Sante was attempting to interfere with the jury by speaking to the media, hoping that they would see it or hear about it. Also, Sante was the one who decided not to take the stand in her own defense because the judge was going to allow for her previous enslavement conviction to be entered into evidence and she would be subject to cross-examination regarding that. In the end, the jury found Sante and Kenny guilty of murder along with 117 additional charges, including robbery, burglary, conspiracy, grand larceny, weapons charges, forgery, eavesdropping, all sorts of crazy stuff. And both of them were sentenced to 125 years in prison. When Sante was being sentenced, she presented a lengthy monologue, kind of like what she was doing on Larry King. She blamed law enforcement, prosecutors, even her own defense team for the frame up. She told the court that this was another Salem witch trial and that prosecutors were murdering the Constitution. Eventually, the judge told Sante to sit down and shut up. Then the judge proceeded to tell Sante that she was a sociopath and the most degenerate person to ever be in her courtroom. And then the judge threw the book at both of them. Then a bizarre incident occurred on October 10th, 2000, while Kenny was conducting an interview with a court TV reporter, Maria Zone, when he suddenly grabbed her and held a pen to her throat, threatening to stab her. And this hostage situation lasted for hours. Kenny ordered the security staff, the cameraman, and the sound engineer out of the room. And this was all going to be for a documentary that was being filmed about him and Sante. Kenny's demand was simple. He did not want his mom extradited to California to face trial for the death of David Kasdan. After a few hours of negotiations, Kenny finally let go of the pen and in an instant where he was momentarily distracted, they were able to get Maria out of harm's way and tackle Kenny to the ground. 
Kenny was finally extradited to California the following March of 2001, and Sante followed in June, both facing the possibility of being sentenced to death. Three years later, in June of 2004, and maybe the years in jail away from his mom allowed Kenny to begin thinking more about what was in his best interest instead of what his mother commanded of him, which was nothing ever in his best interest. He decided to change his plea from not guilty to guilty along with the deal to provide testimony against his mom. And in doing so, they both would avoid the death penalty. They were both subsequently convicted, both sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Today, Kenneth Kimes is 44 years old and is housed at the R.J. Donovan Corrections Facility in San Diego, California. Sante was sent back to serve out her time as far away from Kenny as humanly possible at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in Bedford Hills, New York. And on May 19, 2014, Sante Kimes passed away quietly, alone in her cell. Her cause of death was determined to be of natural causes, and she was 79 years old. The Vanity Fair article summed it up quite nicely. Perhaps never in the annals of crime has a woman been suspected of masterminding the breathtaking range of criminal activity ascribed to Sante Kimes. From arson to sophisticated financial fraud to multiple cold-blooded murders, Sante lived her life unapologetic, unafraid of anyone or anything. Everything she did in life involved the sinister plot, and what she was willing to do, the places she was willing to go, knew no bounds, and that makes for one incredibly scary woman. And that brings this 99th episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any of the others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official discussion page. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of our cases that we cover, as well as current true crime stories, other news events, TV shows that we enjoy, documentaries that we've watched, books that we've read, our pets, our kids, whatever you find that you want to share, please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. I have our birthday shoutouts for last week and this upcoming week, so happy birthday to Mike B., whose birthday is on July 17th, Aaron S. on the 18th, Peter C. on the 19th, Connie B. on the 20th, Jamie B. on the 21st, John V. and Rachel P. on the 22nd, Ryan C. on the 23rd, Tracy D. on the 26th, Joe V. and one of our own here at Orbital Jigsaw, Esther L. on the 27th, and Sandra C. on the 31st. Happy birthday to all of you. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with the mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to. 
to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am so proud to be a part of an amazing group of shows and talented hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. There you can find all of our shows, our merchandise store. You can find all of the California Dreaming stuff there. And there are a couple of new designs that we just uploaded. So take a look at those and get your t-shirt or your coffee mug or your hoodie. Take a pic and post it in our group or on Instagram for everybody to see. Or if you would just like to email us with your feedback, comments, questions, or to just let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. This episode has been going on for so long and my poor doggies have been locked in the bedroom, so I'm going to let them out at the end of this. I am your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams. Okay, my puppies, are you ready to come out here? Come here, babies. Come here. Come on, let's go. Come on. Oh my gosh, what have you guys done? Come here. Come here. Hi, babies. Hi, babies. Come here. Come here. Hi, guys. <laughs> oh, you guys are so good not barking, huh?